Eastern time in the description are the links to Howard's books, his Twitter, his website, and the Howard Bloom Institute. Please go check it out. If you're going to check out at least one book, I would say Global Brain. That's my favorite. Uh, Lucifer Principle, Muhammad Code. Those are up there. But I mean, if you're going to hit one, if you only get, if you only got time for one, Global Brain. That one does it for me. But with that, Howard, talking about the internet, you were just saying something about social networks before I rudely cut you off. Okay, something is really bugging the hell out of me. Um, there's been this massive uh, rumble against social networks for the last three or four years at least. Mm-hmm. You go on Morning Joe and you watch whatever her name is, the female who is now married to Joe Scarborough, and uh, you will see her uh, zinging Mark Zuckerberg over and over and over again. Uh, frankly, I think it's because she it was Spigny Brzezinski's daughter. Yeah. He yeah. was a big Polish <laughs> intellect who was in the administration, I think, of Carter. Yeah, he's in Carter. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. and I think it's just Polish anti-Semitism. Yeah. But one way or the other, people are, are just trying to demolish. They're trying to demolish TikTok, which makes sense because anytime the Chinese government wants, it can it can take all of the data that TikTok has got on you and me and try to use it and can use live data so it knows exactly where we are. So if we're members of a military platoon, mm-hmm. it can follow us gathering together mm-hmm. and know exactly where we're getting together and where we're getting on a ship. Um, so TikTok, yes, has a, a problem. But <laughs> Facebook and uh, and and Google and uh, um all the rest, LinkedIn and all the rest, um, are being slammed as causing society's ills today. And study after study is being trotted out with a misleading headline that the study proves that um, the that Internet use, that social media use is destroying the minds of kids, that it's leading them to it's increasing the problems with mental health. And I know <coughs> I, I know from research, this isn't true. And I know from my own experience, most vividly, that it's not true. Um, if you're growing up in a town where nobody needs you, nobody wants you, nobody likes you, nobody allows you near their groups, um, you can find, you can go out on the internet mm-hmm. and you can find people who resonate to your frequency. Yeah. Even if they're in Siberia or Spain uh, or South Africa, you'll find them. I, and whereas you would have felt totally um, devaluated in your own local community, you can find people who will value you, um, who will validate you all over the world. Um, that is a miracle that simply did not exist. 25 years ago. Um, And I become particularly disturbed um, because back in 1988, you know, I was the leading head of the biggest publicity firm in the music industry, working with Prince Michael Jackson, Bob Marley, et cetera. Um, And I got sick. And I got sick with an illness that my doctor didn't know anything about. He had no idea of what it was at all. Um, and um, and I spent 15 years imprisoned in my bedroom. And for five years was too weak to have another person in the room with me and too weak to talk. Too weak to even say three words. 
Um, so how did I survive? Via the internet. In 1983, some brilliant startup people um, had started a company to sell internet services. Internet services in 1983 had only been available to really high-flying college professors. And I envied the heck out of those people. I really wanted in on this. Yeah. And then some entrepreneur in the record industry worked out an arrangement that allowed those of us in the music industry to get on the internet. Now, in reality, the internet probably started around 1970. This is 13 years after the internet really began, but it was the beginning, Yeah. nonetheless. And the internet was such a big, dark, and empty place that when Peter Gabriel saw me appear in this darkness, he rushed over immediately in cyber terms and and sent me an email and said hello. Um, so when I got sick, it took me three years to realize that one of the reasons I could not talk was because I had a very limited amount of energy. And every day I was getting up, putting my clothes on, trudging to my front room where my desk and office is all set up and sitting down at my office chair and trying to work in a normal upright position. And I can be really thick headed. It took forever for me to realize that here I was taking this very limited energy budget and, and I was it. spending it on sitting up. And so maybe if I lay down, um, I'd be able to talk again. Um, so I had my assistant find a Chinese box that allowed me to control two computers. He set up two computers next to the bed because in those days a computer had far less yeah. uh, capacity than your cell phone has today. And the Chinese box allowed me to control both of them using one monitor and one keyboard. And I began to establish an identity. I couldn't establish an identity in the real world because yeah. I couldn't get into the real world. Yeah. Um, but I could establish an identity effortlessly or almost effortlessly on this miraculous thing called the Internet. And so I basically... Um, uh, I'm trying to find the right word here. I became a different person hmm. um, on the Internet. Well, why a different person? Because I became the real me. The real me had been the real me in the regular world. But the real me now was no longer had the ability to do anything in the music industry or do any PR or make a living. Um, the real me had to go back to the me I had been all along, the 10-year-old. Yeah who had fallen in love with science and microbiology and theoretical physics and started racking up science credentials at the age of 12. Um, but the, and the internet allowed me to find people of like mind in Israel, in Australia, in Holland, um, all over the place. And it allowed me, once I made this transition that took me three bloody years to make, I was able to write three books laying there on my back and I was able to found two international scientific groups with people from all over the world. So I never want to see those abilities taken away from children. Um, I probably have told you one time or another, a friend of mine was having an exhibit of his art at a gallery. And he invited me to the after party. So at the after party, I was sitting at a table with 
a lot of people who were much, much younger than I am. They were in their 30s. And two guys in their 30s were sitting across from me. And both of them had little kids six years old. And one of them explained how his little kid from the age of two had been going out on the Internet Googling his favorite thing in the world, submarines. And by the time he got was taken into school at the age of five, he was a, a bachelor's of arts level expert on submarines. And the other guy said, well, that happened to my kid, too, except he was into, guess what? Dinosaurs, of course, dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you let kids a long time ago, around 1910, um, a philosopher, John Dewey at Columbia University, um, created a new form of education. It was called progressive education, which doesn't mean that it was woke education. It meant that instead of uh, um, drumming lessons into kids by slapping the backs of their wrists with steel rulers and things of that sort, um, or by caning them, um, you started with their basic curiosities and you moved out from there. What I was seeing in the conversation between these two guys, the one with the five-year-old dinosaur expert and the one with the five-year-old submarine expert, was what happens if you just let kids' uh, imaginations and their curiosities loose. And once you hand the, your kid his first tablet, um, kids can handle tablets at the age of 18 months. And it's astonishing the way they do it. Because it's obvious that if you just watch their eyes and watch their fingers, that they know the geography of the Internet better than you ever will. Yeah. And know how to work it. So you're opening, let's say, 75 percent of the world's knowledge, possibly 35 percent of the world's knowledge, but a huge mass of knowledge to kids and letting them let their just, curiosities rip. Just run around. Right. And the result is go is going to be some of the best educated children you've ever had. Yeah. Now, in 2005, let me just blow my nose for no, the sake of this cold. No, you're good. Um, okay. This is messy to do on screen. No, who cares? Who cares? I just, I'll, um, I'll, I'll talk. No, it's no, it's it's I think it's something Howard actually brings up a lot. You talk about, you know, in the last 200 years, you know, we've doubled the IQ or we've doubled the, the you know, the the relative wealth of the individual. And then you always say we owe it to the next generation to, or to the next hundred years. And I think you're correct. I mean, I'm 32 and I already see me being left in the wake of 10 year olds who know how to operate things. And I mean, I'm 32 and I do a podcast online and make my living online, something my parents could never fathom. The next generation is that is what it is. It's the innocent curiosity. And also one of your, you know, one of your, uh, one of your things you live by is look at everything as if you're seeing it for the first time. Kids are able to do that. They don't have to try to do that. So when you unleash a kid on a situation, it's much like taking psychedelics and examining a problem. You break down all of your preconceived structures about it. That's why I mean it was so huge in Silicon Valley was it allowed you to look at problems differently and go, what? How do we approach this? Because if you approach something that you've looked at a million times. You have inertia. You have baggage. If you approach something new, and what's the best way to approach something new? Have a child look at it, and they can truly, truly soak up what they want. I mean, that that five-year-old into submarines, I mean, he could be 20 and being brought on to the Navy to do research on a, the next-gen submarine, and this kid is, he's 15 years into his education by the time he can vote. 
And right. And something I realized along the way, virtual realities can save your life. Yeah. How do I know yeah. that? Because virtual reality saved mine. I was that kid yeah. who nobody wanted in Buffalo, New York. Other kids didn't want to have anything to do with me. My parents didn't find me the least bit interesting for God knows what reason. And um, and then my next door neighbor said, look, my kids are away from the summer. They're at summer camp. And I have this reading room that I built for them. And it has all kinds of books. And why don't you come over and look at the books? I was 10. Um, well, I had been very slow to learn to read um, and very slow to learn to write. My teachers thought I was mentally retarded. They sent me, sent me off for psychological testing for mental retardation. But once I saw these books, they were the Oz books. They were all 39 Frank L. Baums and his successors, Oz books. Let me take the lozenge here so I don't yeah, keep you're good. coughing. Yeah. No, you're good. Um, no, Super Saul is a gift from so, God. So how did I spend my childhood? I escaped from the real world where nobody wanted to have anything to do with me and I was completely isolated to a virtual world. You know what happens to you when you read a book that you're really absorbed in? Yes. And you're off in another world. Yep. You're, you're off in the world of the book and you no longer remember the little tiny details of everyday life back here on the real planet, yep. the so-called real planet. Because this re reality, the new reality of the book, is so utterly absorbing mm. to you. Um, the internet is a new form. It's a new virtual reality. Yeah. And it's going to produce the smartest kids you've ever seen. And you were alluding to something called the Flynn effect. If you gave a an IQ test, the Stanford Binet IQ test from 1916, the first year it was administered, to an average 100 kids you plucked off the street, today kids who we are told have been dumbed down and shallowed by twitter and facebook and the internet um those kids would measure an average iq of near genius 135 why because the iq has been going up something like three to five percent every 10 years since 1916. And so the the people who make the IQ test do something they call renormalizing it. They jigger the test so that the uh, kids taking it will still come out to have an average IQ of 100. Well, what does that mean, jiggering the test? They make it harder because the kids are smarter. Yeah. Um, Adjusting for so, IQ inflation. Right, and Stephen Johnson has an absolutely brilliant book, the science writer, called Everything Bad is Good for You. It came out in 2005. And in it, he points out how, okay, we got TV around 1948 to 1950. Um, the initial big TV shows like Gunsmoke had one plot, one central plot, and one amusing side plot, um, and that was it basically one plot shows and then he skips over he shows you how <coughs> how popular culture has complexified generation after generation after generation and in the case of tv by the time the 1980s and 1990s rolled around you had shows like lost 
And Lost has something like 34 characters. And in order to keep track of those characters, to piece together who they are, and to keep track of their lives in the Lost scripts, you have to take every DVD you can get your hands on of the show, and you have to, every episode, and you have to binge watch. Yeah. Which is something the kids started doing yeah. in the 1990s and 2000s. That's how much more complex the plots had become. So Stephen Johnson's hypothesis is that kids' IQs have been going up steadily since 1916 because the media they're immersed in has been complexifying and has been more and more challenging to the mind. But guess what? It, it's entertainment. So it challenges the mind in terms so delicious you can't turn it down. Yeah. That you are lured into this exercise in increasing complexity and in upgrading intelligence scores. Hmm. Um, and you love it and you don't want to leave it behind you. Um, so people who are knocking the internet are the comparison I make. I, I wrote a script on this for Coast to Coast. Coast to Coast was kind enough to let me do three different shows on this topic. Most of them uh, focused around TikTok. But, and then there's a new bill in the Senate that would uh, limit kids under 13 would no longer be allowed to have social network accounts or use the social networks. That's outrageous. What about all those kids who have no place in the real world? Yeah. And could easily find a place online if they can have two-way communication. Um, and then... <laughs> it, it would it would make it impossible for you to get on uh, social networks if you were 13 to 18 years old unless you had parental not just parental consent but you had parental consent with the paperwork your birth certificate and all kinds of stuff to prove who you are and how old you are and civil rights groups have been terrified at this idea that you're going to have to give the government all this paperwork Fuck on no. yourself. Fuck off. Um, but Fuck that's the, the way this Fuck bill reads. Well, not only and, is that and, and so there, there's a, I, so I make a comparison in, in this script I did. And um, around 360 BC, Plato was extremely disturbed because there was a new medium becoming popular with young people. And he knew it was going to destroy their minds. Why? Because kids in Greece had been forced to memorize word for word, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the two founding books of the Greek culture. And Plato was absolutely certain that it was the discipline of being forced to memorize these books that made for the quality of the Greek mind. And with this new this new media, it was going to um, it was going to perpetuate sloppiness and laziness. You wouldn't have to go through this rigorous discipline anymore, and it was going to dumb kids down. And you know what the new medium was that he was saying would dumb kids down? Writing paper. Papyrus. It was writing. You got it the first time. <laughs> it was writing, and and within a hundred years, you had a library of over ten thousand volumes in Alexandria, Egypt, because now you could use writing. Hmm. You didn't have to memorize absolutely every bit of knowledge you expected to carry with you through life. Yeah. Um, then, in uh, about uh, sixteen eighty, 
the town fathers of London were went into a panic because there was a new form of entertainment and the kids were flocking to it and they were sure it was going to destroy these kids moral and ethical fiber because it was introducing these kids to sex and violence so they passed the town fathers of london passed a bill outlawing this new form of entertainment before it could destroy all of the youth of england well fortunately the new entertainment form had a fan in um the palace it was queen elizabeth the first and she would not let them shut it down and what was it what was it that was about to destroy the minds and morals of the kids of england it was theater and the plays of shakespeare and we try everything in our power to lure kids into reading shakespeare today not to dumb them down but to make them smarter not to destroy their ethics and morals but to increase their ethics and morals then in the 1930s there was another form of popular entertainment and it drove parents absolutely wild they were hysterical about it and a bunch of bishops came out saying that this was the primrose path to hell it was going to lead kids into sexuality um it was going to destroy the moral fabric of the united states of america and it must be immediately banned totally banned that was swing music and the dances <laughs> that they used to have for swing music and and then tom brokaw about 10 years ago came out with a book called the greatest generation and he was talking about the generation that had grown up with dancing <laughs> to swing music he yeah. felt that it had produced the greatest generation america has ever seen yeah so parents have always gone crazy with hysteria about new new media that they didn't have as a kid that their kids now suddenly have and it drives them crazy and it drives them crazy for a very simple reason they don't for the last it. 12 years they have been raising these adorable little children yeah and now all of a sudden sex hormones yeah. have entered the scene yeah and their adorable little children are no longer adorable yeah. little children deviant they little are, demons they are competitors yeah as adults they are sexual beings and parents just they they go crazy when sure. they're losing their children because their children are growing up I they just it. go nuts but we should not be listening to these anti-media hysterias because every generation writing Shakespeare, um, swing music has somehow taken things up a notch um, and increased the level of intelligence. Plus, the complaints are constant that using the Internet, we are uh, provoking all kinds of mental illness. Well, guess what? When you can find other people like you who validate you, that helps you more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And there are things called self-help groups on the Internet. Um, patients of different kinds, patients who have diabetes get together in self-help groups. Uh, patients who have um, uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis get together in self-help groups. And it was through the Internet my dot my wife did something really brilliant i mean i i don't talk to her anymore because she divorced me in a cruel way after 34 years of marriage because i was laying there in a bed like a sausage um but she did one really brilliant thing she convinced a chronic fatigue syndrome doctor 
to come out and see me when he was going out to Brooklyn anyway for a party. And the most important thing he did for me was to hand me a piece of paper with an email address on it and was the address of one of his patients in Texas. And he said, email her. So I emailed her and the two of us via email and the internet went out looking for solutions to the problem of myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome. And guess what? People in the chronic fatigue syndrome community regard what I did as a miracle because I was in bed for 15 years and it looked like I would never get out of my lifetime again. And I'm out. And Tommy, you know, I'm doing 1,260 vibrational plankings a morning. And on a good day, I'm walking six miles. And on a not so good day, I'm walking three and a half miles. Well, so, you know, uh, I owe my life well, to the internet. And I don't want any fucking congressmen or senators to take it away from kids because I know how much it would mean, would have meant to me when I was a kid. Well, I think we both agree, uh, fuck the government. I think most people agree with that. And also, as an aside, I mean, not only is it stupid and, and kind of inhumane, it's also laughable. Because not only do adults always try to shut it down, they fail miserably. Yeah, I'm not, yes. about, not allowed to buy alcohol. Yeah, good fucking luck. Me and my 16-year-old friends, we found a way to get weed. In deep south Georgia, at a Catholic school, we found a way to get weed, alcohol, pussy, and porn. It's what it is. It's just what Amazing. it is. So, But more importantly, I mean, you know, I never really thought about the internet in that form, but I mean, you know, I graduated college in 2013, uh, you know, fucking great girlfriend, a lot of friends, lost a brother to suicide 2014. And then talk about finding, you know, online communities. That's not necessarily a thing that your friends go through. It's not like a coming of age, your first heartbreak, the first time you get a, you know, your driver's license. That's a, that's a rare thing. I talked to a lot of people online and that helped a lot, but you know, furthermore, I moved home to my parents' house in August, 2016, at the age of 26, uh, overweight, on drugs, suicidal. Uh, girlfriend dumped me. I don't blame her at all. I didn't have any friends. I ostracized a lot of them, and it was my fault. I was a very angry, bitter person for two years after my brother died. So I wouldn't say that uh, my friends left me. I would say I destroyed my friendships. And I was at home for five long years in, in Maryland, five or 600 miles from Atlanta where I knew everybody. So at 26 years old, I, had, I lost all of my friends except for, like, one. I lost my girlfriend and really had no life. And... It took several years of, of therapy and sobriety and going to the gym and blah, blah, blah. And then starting this podcast truly is in 2019, after three years of being at home, therapy was great. I'll always be grateful for that. Medication is wonderful. Modern medicine is great. And loving parents are invaluable. The thing that catalyzed it all, the Precambrian explosion, if you will, of my recovery and becoming a normal adult again was starting this podcast. It was listening to audiobooks. It was emailing guests. I logged, I got banned from YouTube, but YouTube, Rumble, Spotify, Audible, Amazon, buying all this shit from Amazon. I have never, this is episode 1,225, I have never done an in-person episode. I have met maybe five of the guests. This entire internet is truly my life, and it's not just my life, and it's what I do. It brought me back from the brink and whereas yours was uh you know chronic fatigue it was cfs you yours was an actual medical uh situation i mean even being depressed and overweight and not getting laid and living with your parents like a loser at age 26 27 28 29 30 yeah man you're pretty much dead and 
I would say in more than one ways, this podcast has saved my life. It's given me a point to work towards. You can't do a podcast if you haven't slept well. So it got me back on a good sleep schedule. You got to exercise before the podcast. I'm foggy if I don't exercise. You got to be reading. You got to know what the fuck the author's talking about. So you got to start educating yourself. You can't be hungover. You can't be high. So you got to put down the weed. You got to put down the alcohol. It has made my life better in every possible way. And if it has done that for me, I have to preserve it. And I I had honestly never thought about how much the internet played a role in this until you started talking about this. And I've realized, yeah, holy shit. No, this is without this. I would, I'd probably be dead. Best case. I'd still be above my parents' garage. Right. So, so it's you. true for both of I'm us. I'm with you. And I never even we, thought about that before today. So we've been blessed by living in a virtual age. I've been yes, blessed sir. by living to, through two virtual ages, reading and then the internet. Yeah. So I don't want anybody to take the internet away from that 18-month-old who is fiddling around with a tablet more effectively, efficiently than you and I can do it. And now let's go back to writing. Think if if they had effectively gotten rid of writing. You talk about how 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 Newton and and von Leeuwenhoek and they all reached out across the centuries and made you right. feel less alone. And I've right, told you exactly. that when I read about you. I go, one of two things is happening. Either he is as crazy as I am and we're confirming each other's insanity, which I'm still not sure if it's true or not. But more importantly is I feel less weird. I go, oh, Howard, that's how I felt as a kid. That's how I feel now. And so then you have to kind of get meta into it and go, well, without writing, you wouldn't be able to have that connection. Without the internet, you and I would not be able to have this connection. And then one step further, what weird fucking kid in the middle of Montana is listening to this podcast instead of, jerking off and collecting baseball cards and he's listening to us i mean god bless him but i mean if he's listening to us and he's going oh i don't feel so weird i don't feel so alone it does propagate for and then you never know who's the genius that hears something and it's the message in the bottle and and they develop the the faster than light engine right that's how this shit works right yes you've got it right on the head got to bring all the mental nodes online you got to bring every possible computer every camera angle to recreate something you have to have every possible brain connected to the machine and then all it takes is one person with one unique viewpoint some kid that's in a submarines that sees a similarity between submarines and fucking goldback currency that no one else saw and it just next thing you know that's the the next Wright brother or that's the next Oppenheimer or whatever the fuck, or that's the next Joseph Lister. And that's how it all comes. I mean, you've talked about super saturated solutions where you add one more thing and then all of a sudden something crystallizes out of, uh, out of apparently nothing. That is, that is how (laughs) giant steps happen in society and science and culture and technology is a bunch of groundwork. And then there's one tipping point where all of a sudden the crystal appears. So by that logic, you would want to bring as many nodes online because you never know who is going to see the angle that is the is the last metaphorical, you know, plugging in of the outlet and then the supercomputer comes online. Right. Right. Well, the brain, there's an analogy to what you're talking about. Yeah. A, a highly energized network with tons and tons of participants. Yeah. The network effect. Um, your brain is a hundred billion cells, Yeah. but that's not really your brain cells, your neurons. 
those hundred billion are not really what makes you you. No, it's the what makes you you is a hundred trillion connections. Yeah, between the neurons. Yeah. So you and I are all about. We are walking testimonies to the power of interconnectedness, um, of networking, of massive networking. Um, and when people talk about breaking up Facebook, for example, that's so profoundly stupid, it defies belief, because Twitter works, Facebook works because of the networking effect. Yeah. Everybody is on the same platform. Yeah. Um, that's what makes them functional. Break them up and you break up the network effect. Break up and you brain. don't accomplish anything of value for human society. To the contrary, you set society back. Because the Chinese are going to continue developing more WeChat style things yeah. that are more advanced than the stuff that we've got. And to Global Brain, you're getting rid of, this is a nice plug for Global Brain, is you are getting, as you, and I use this analogy a lot, I, I, I pirate your information, is um the idea of the, the charcoal brick and the flame above it. The higher, oh, yes. the higher order persona that no right. one thing understands but yet evolves from it you have to put together the whole thing so that the next order persona comes. I mean, think about an Amber Alert. We all get a text. Look out for this van. And it's because there's right. a little girl's been grabbed. Think about um, the X prizes from like DARPA, right? They're throwing it out there because clearly they're like, we don't know how to do this. Hey, every kid out there with a, you know, every genius kid, here's a chance to win 10 million. Uh, put a rover on Mars and make it drive 100 feet. Right. Right. You're not you're, you're putting it out. You're putting it in the you're putting it out in the job listings, if you will. Right. You don't want to get rid of that brain. You want the entire brain out there and it will have many flaws. That doesn't mean that's going to be that doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. You're going to have hate speech. You're going to have pedophiles. They're not going anywhere. We have to learn to adapt with that. And the, the value of the big brain is so invaluable. And not only that, it doesn't matter if we stop. China's not fucking stopping. Right. So like, it's, it's not an option. It's not an. It is not on the table to say let's pause the internet. Well, also you don't want to make the big internet providers, the Googles and and Facebooks, responsible for the content they carry. No. The people who say these things are responsible yes. for what they've had to say. Yes. Because you know, once upon a time we had the invention in eighteen seventy six of the telephone. And by the 1930s and the 1940s, it took off. And we got to the point where every home had a telephone. Now, what would have happened uh, if we had um, gone after the telephone company for every conversation that we didn't approve of? For, I mean, Al Capone, I'm sure, used the telephone an awful lot. I'm sure he did. So what would have happened if uh, the government had gone after the Bell Telephone Company um, for Al Capone's crimes? They could easily have done that, but they didn't. They were wise enough to realize that the telephone is just a pipe. It is content neutral. So you don't attack the pipe. You attack the people who are poisoning hmm. the pipe, which turns out how many Al Capones were there? Um, in in North America um, in the 1930s and 1920s. A tiny, tiny, tiny amount, the vast mass of people were using the telephone for something they'd never had before. The ability to contact a cousin 
in California from New York City, um, a, a communication that would have taken three months each way, a total of six months um, in the days before the telephone. Yeah, It was an astonishing empowerment. And, and what does the book, The Genius of the Beast, say? That capitalism's mandate is be messianic. Save, lift, upgrade, and empower your neighbors. Look at the powers the telephone gave us. Look at how primitive those powers look now compared to our smartphones, mini computers in our pocket, um, and the internet and laptops. It's unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. And these new powers, embrace them for God's sakes. Yes, every criminal elements will find a way to do yes. their criminality on any media that you ever discover. So chase the criminals yeah, um, and keep the, the, the ground free for those who are not criminals. I mean, my big conundrum these days is I have been a champion of free speech all my life. And I went to bat against uh, the People's Mu Parents Music Resource Center run by Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife, um, in the 1980s. And I knew that I could lose my career for doing that because I believed in freedom of speech. Now, what do we do about genocidal speech? Um, uh, for example, militant Islam, Palestinianism mm. is it's not a country. Um, Palestinianism is it is mass death speech. It's a death cult. It, it, it is mass murder speech. Um, it, it is genocide speech. The one element that holds the so-called Palestinians together is their desire to exterminate the Jews in Israel and then beyond that to exterminate the Jews in the world. Why? Because Muhammad, the founder of the movement, said the day of judgment will not come until every stone and tree stands up and says there is a Jew behind me. Kill him. That's in the Hadith. That genocidal anti-Semitism is built in to Islam. So we don't want to destroy our ability to use the Internet because people like this exist. Um, we need to out-argue them and reveal them and, um, uh, and, and use free speech. However, we do know that uh, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, and this is serious, this is not Islamophobia, this is reality, that groups like the Muslim Brotherhood are dedicated to overthrowing what they think is the most corrupt civilization in the history of mankind, Western civilization, and replacing it with Islam and Sharia. Mm -hmm. And that is a long-term goal. One of the brilliances of Islam is that it's willing to embrace goals that will take 700 years. Yeah, um, We don't have that long time frame ahead of us. We should, because what we're fighting for, human rights, um, pluralism, tolerance, freedom of speech and democracy, these are extremely important things. And and as which founding father said, eternal vigilance, vigilance is the price of liberty. But we, ha we can't just arbitrarily go cutting out the speech of folks we don't like. Even if we, I mean, one man's information is another man's disinformation. Mm -hmm. And it's it's kind of some weird synchronicities. That that quote, eternal vigilance, has come up on the two prior podcasts today and then yesterday. That's amazing. Yesterday, I actually plugged your book, Muhammad Code. And uh -huh. I, brought, I brought that some weird synchronicities there. Um, 
But no, you're in. And if we try to stomp out everything, you try to stomp out the telephone because Al Capone used it. Well, you 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 would apply that logic throughout time. We would never leave the cave. Somebody right. somebody made a fire. Bob made a fire and he cooked the meat. Yeah. Well, Tim made a fire and he murdered Susie with it. Right. Okay. You well, got it. And it's it will so always be on fire. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Nineteen hijackers t- killed three thousand Americans. I can still get on a plane. Right. You move forward. And it doesn't mean that you don't adjust, but you move forward. Well, the old bloomism is that a hammer can be used to build a house or a hammer can be used to kill. Yes. So don't outlaw the hammer. Um, outlaw the killing. Yeah. If that's what you dislike. And and when you think about the average mind, right, the average mind has the ability to to decipher some people won't but it's a very small population probably mentally retarded medically retarded and that that again that is what it is and it's sad the average person if you if you censor someone if you shut me down if you shut down howard and i because this is a dangerous podcast talking about the freedom of the internet all you're going to do is make it more attractive you go well what were they talking about Right. I, I want that Library of Alexandria shit. What's the What's that forbidden text? And then you watch the episode. You go, ah, hey, it was all right, but it was there was no black magic in it. You make a strong, and you also don't challenge us. Okay, so what happens? All right, so it's not enough that we censor the podcast. We're gonna kill Tommy and Howard. All right, well now we're martyrs. All right, right. And you want to go? I want to know what they said. All you're doing is giving us more value than we than we deserve. What you should do is come on come on here and if you truly believe that your argument's better that the internet should be censored and that kids shouldn't have access that's fine you're entitled to that that opinion but you have to come on here and make us look stupid no amount of censorship will ever outdo the power of just taking an argument in broad daylight and dismantling it right then it's gone forever and as soon as someone goes, did you hear about that Tommy Howard interview? Someone goes, yeah, but you know Bob made a rebuttal video to it. And see if Tommy and Howard were saying one plus one's three. Bob actually broke it down and showed that one plus one's two. You go, oh, okay. And then that's it. It's dead forever. But you censor it, we become gods. So it doesn't even work. So Global Brain shows how ideas gain preeminence through the battle between subcultures, between groups. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. You're it good. shows it shows how there was there were two different views, for example, of how the pores and cell membranes operate. And the groups behind these two different views went to war with each other. And one group won and its view became accepted as reality. And the other group was sort of run out of town. Because um, what happens is in science is when one group wins, it takes over the journals. And then it won't let in papers from the people on the other side. And because you have to publish or perish in the academic community, that spells the death of the tenure track for those who oppose you and disagree with you. Um, we're, we're tracking a case right now, the Howard Bloom Institutes, um, big project is creating a course on omnology for Kepler Space University in Florida. And I've been asking, I was asked, okay, who are the eight greatest omnologists you can think of? Because we'll base one class on each of them. Um, and I brought up um, von Humboldt 
Alexander von Humboldt, um, and Herbert Spencer. These are two people who have been written out of the history of science. That's how powerfully some opposing subculture within the scientific community was. It basically exterminated their points of view and wiped their names, Say their names out again? of the scientific literature. What are their names? And Alexander von Humboldt. He was so famous in his time that 300 different species around the world were named after him. Um, he was so, so famous that even in Buffalo, New York, where I grew up, four blocks away, there was a Humboldt Drive named after him. There are Humboldt Drives and Humboldt Hills and all kinds of things all over the world, all over the world, because he was one of the most famous people of the 1800s. And Herbert Spencer um, was, um, he gave psychology its name. Um, he gave sociology its name. He mapped out the program for sociology. Um, and why are these two, why have these two been disappeared, wiped out, rubbed out, erased from the history of science? Um, Herbert Spencer was known as the greatest philosopher of his time, and he had a spectacular impact as far away as India and Japan. Um, and yet these two men are so unknown that when I bring up their names to you, who are a well-educated person, to say the least, never heard of um, they don't ring a bell at ne all. Never heard the names in my life. Because both of them were omnologists. Um, both of them insisted on taking all the scientific disciplines and putting them together in a big picture. And for um, for Alexander von Humboldt, that big picture, I mean, he traveled to South America. This is 30 years before Darwin would do the same thing. And Darwin, in fact, was influenced by Humboldt when he did his Voyage of the Beetle. So von Humboldt in uh, 1799 sat off for South America with 40 different kinds of scientific instruments. And he took samples of everything, everywhere he went in South America. He even climbed what was believed to be the tallest mountain in the world. And people wondered if a human could live in the rarefied atmosphere near the top of that mountain. Von Humboldt took that climb. He, his porters refused to go with him. They were sure it was certain death, that it was suicide. He packed as many of his 40 instruments as he could. He stopped every, probably every 500 feet. Uh, and took samples and specimens um, and notes, extensive notes, and he made it almost all the way to the top of the mountain. But his adventures were the most famous travel adventures of the 1800s. And his goal was to take all the sciences, all these measurements and everything, and pull them all together into a big picture. And according to his biographer, um, he invented nature. He invented the nature we know today. He invented the idea that nature is one big organism. And if you change something in the system, it's going to affect other things in the system all the way down the line. That was his idea. And he came from a group of German romantics who were into doing science and poetry and interchangeably doing them both. So von Humboldt had this big picture view that spanned the scientific specializations. And so did Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer's life quest was putting together what he called the synthetic philosophy, a philosophy that would join all the sciences and all of history into creating a bigger picture. 
And uh, but these guys, some subculture, deep six, these guys. Probably in the 1890s, apparently there was a subculture that said only specialists are real scientists. These generalists are not doing real science. These holists are not doing real science. So we have yet to track down who the villains were, the deep six, these guys. But these guys are very important to us because we're promoting omnology, mm -hmm. which is a discipline for the promiscuously curious. It's a discipline that says if you have three different major curiosities and they rule your passions, follow them for as long as they stay vividly alive. And then if others appear, follow those yes. too. And when all of your friends are, are hitting the age of 40 and the men are buying little red sports cars and picking up blondes and cheating on their wives and the women are planning elaborate divorces so they can finally find out who they really are, all because they don't know why they're here on planet Earth, you will be coming back from the wilderness of your multiple curiosities at the age of 40 for the first time. And while they feel they're at the end of their lives, you will know you were at the beginning yes. of yours. I would. Oh, that's omnology. No, it, um, it, I look at my 20s, which were, I mean, really, I moved into a fraternity house in Valdosta, Georgia on my 20th birthday. And that's the day I decided I was going to stop being an idiot and start studying and become pre-med. And I moved out of my parents' house when I was 30. My 20s were the worst decade of my life. Most people would say those are the best. But I can honestly say 30, 31, and 32. 31 was better than 30, and 32 has been better than 31. These have been the best years of my life because I feel, very, I feel very much so like I'm coming back from, from an odd. I'm at the bottom of the mountain now, and I'm coming back, and I'm scarred, and I'm kind of fucked up. But I feel... I mean, truly more than ever, like my life is be I, I, the, that spark you get when you're 18, you're going away to college and then you look back and go, ah, oh, the whole world is out in front of me. I feel that now more than ever. And I, I wouldn't trade that for the world. But there is a there's a hazing phase where you don't feel that, where you feel odd and you feel outcast. And I don't think that's a, a bug. I think that's a feature of omnologies. You got to feel like a fucking weirdo. And that will drive you further into studying things and to reading about them. And I love reading about nuclear bunkers. I don't know why I'll never have access to one. I'll never afford one. And I don't kind of don't want to be in one because if there's a nuke, I'd rather just die, but I'm interested in them. I'm going to keep reading about them. I don't know why I don't care why, because when that, that spark, that vivid appetite, that kid learning about submarines, you follow that down just go down the rabbit hole and you will find if you truly understand the history of submarines or the history of dinosaurs or the history of doorknobs, if you go into any one thing so thoroughly and completely, which you can only do if you truly love it, you'll find the the answers to everything. You'll find intrinsic, pat, much like the brain cells. It's not the doorknob right. or the submarine or the, the fucking history of toenail clipping. It is the patterns that you find in them that you then realize, oh, these patterns apply to everything. I guarantee you if you studied submarines and toenail clippers enough, you'd be able to write an insanely good paper on how similar they are because patterns right. are this. There's only so many patterns under the sun. Right. And that's the importance of omnology is 
you can make there's many different entrance points but you can reach that same golden egg of wisdom at the center that's my pitch for omnology well i agree so we should cut it off because sure. i've got yeah, a you got you got uh, you got a you got a cold you normally have a show but you got a cold and uh that is that is that is fair you do have a cold um i just want to say as sort of a meta note i had never heard those two names before but really you did just um, say them, and now I have heard of them, and now everyone that listens to this podcast has heard of them. So censorship does not work. Well, the, the real deal is I was about to say go look them up, and then I realized they these guys have been so heavily maligned that I had a person look up, a really competent, talented person, look up Herbert Spencer. Yeah. And he came back to me with a couple of paragraphs filled with anti-Herbert Spencer propaganda. Jeez. Because only the propagandists who killed Herbert Spencer's visibility have survived. Um, as for Von Humboldt, I think you could find much more interesting information on him. Mm. But these were two of the greatest men in their time, two of the most famous men in their time, and they're gone. And now we, at the International Psychology, no, I no, sorry, the wrong group, at the Howard Bloom Institute, have to figure out why, who deep six them, who and, killed Herbert Spencer and Alexander von Humboldt's memory. And now their names are on the podcast forever. Right. So censorship doesn't work. It's now out there. Right. Okay. So uh, it's wonderful to see you again. We'll set up another one soon. Yes, sir. And Howard, you get better. Go rest. Drink some water. Take your Cepasol. Let the cold run through you. And uh, guys, please go into the description, grab Howard's books, follow his Twitter. His, uh, his Facebook, his website, or the Howard Bloom Institute. Howard, I'll send you an email. We will schedule the next one. As always, I love talking to you, man. It's and send me great. the URL. Yes, sir. Um, yes, sir. I'll do that. The live URL. Yes, okay, sir. Okay, great. All right, Tommy, you're terrific. You too, sir. Thank you so much, Howard. I love you guys. Please go check out Howard. He's a genius. Till next time, brother. You're the Recording best, Howard. Stopped. Take care. God bless. Thanks for watching, everybody. Peace.